Now, have we thought what a plunge this is? Have we followed with our minds the ruin of one poorest, darkest, weakest pagan soul through its progressive depravity and despair, through its increasing capacity for sinning and suffering, and through the never-ending, ever-widening vistas of its immortality till the woe is vaster than the wreck of the world? And do we remember how frequently this ruin occurs? Every blast of war or pestilence or famine which shakes the human crop strews hail with precious seed of lost souls is thickly when the November wind sweeps the sear leaves of some trackless wood into its silent lake. If the deaths of this generation of sinners were perfectly regular in series, it would furnish well nigh sixty for every minute, so that while we sit here deliberating in cold debate, somewhere in this field of death, every second of time marks the dying gasp of a human being. Hark to the fatal beat. Each stroke of the pendulum tolls the nail of another soul that drops. Each stroke is another plunge into the pit, and a new burst of another everlasting wail joining the many-voiced threnody of despair. Oh, terrible world in which to live! Oh, dread responsibility of this living harvest, in the reaping of which we must race with death! How can our sluggish feet overtake the swift angel to snatch the prey from his grasp when the baleful shade of his wings is seen flitting over isle and continent, even as the gathering gloom of night would appear to some watcher from the skies to sweep around the revolving globe? Should we not shrink in shuddering horror from the tremendous competition till we recur to our divine master to infuse us with his strength and to wash out the sin of our sluggishness with his blood? Yet let us not be cast down. We remember that so swiftly as the dark edge of night devours the surface of our world from sight, even so swiftly does the advancing flush of day revolve behind it and reconquer it to light and joy. Thus will the light of the Son of Righteousness follow and outrun the shadows of death until they darken the earth no more. Number two. There are eras in the world's progress which compare with other ages as harvest seasons for Christ. In such an era, our Savior evidently considered His own generation to be. I cannot suppose that when He pronounced the fields white to harvest, He is all sea and I, which declared the field is a world, embraced only the approaching clusters of Samaritan summoned by the startled woman to the well, or only the teeming villages of Galilee and Judea. Doubtless He meant to include that general preparation for the gospel pervading the civilized world at that day, which had brought in the fullness of time in the acceptable year of the Lord. Many important elements concurred in this preparation. Both Jews and Gentiles were aroused by a general hope of a divine intervention, and the clear announcements by which Hebrew prophets had heralded the coming of the Messiah were repeated in the fainter echoes of Eastern Magi and Latin poets. It was also the Augustan age of mental activity when the languages of antiquity had received the finishing touch of their cultivation and human speculation had borne its maturest fruits. 
The Greek tongue, fittest of all for expressing moral distinctions, and already in virtue of a Septuagint virgin, a sacred language to God's people, was diffused throughout the civilized world as a language of polite intercourse and traffic. The Macedonian arms had carried it from Ionia to the jungles of Hindustan and the cataracts of the Nile, and even after Greece herself fell before the Roman, the rough conqueror, by adopting his captive as his tutoress, had spread it throughout the West. More than this, in every nation under heaven were found the Jews of the dispersion, nursing the great spiritual doctrines and worship of the Old Testament, and that most often in the Greek Scriptures, so that to whatever place of note in any land the evangelist might go, he found in the bosom of paganism a place and audience familiar with at least the rudiments of his system. Yet more, the civilized world was at length at peace, the empire of the Caesars, so vast that it proudly styled itself by a name synonymous with the habitable globe, had consolidated the nation under its iron rule, and steeled their jars with a force too mighty to be even assailed. From the Atlantic to the Euphrates, her armed police protected the freedom of travel and traffic, so that the stranger of every tongue was safe in every other land, whatever the lawful purpose of his journey. The barriers of danger and prejudice which fits people from people were leveled, and mankind were mingled in a fermenting, inquiring mass. Once more, the pagan mind had outgrown the swaddling bands of its mythology. Understanding sharpened by the dialects of Athens, Tarsus, Alexandria, rejected the puerile theogenies which impressed the awestruck fancies of their rude father. And while human depravity, thus educated, disdained the fears of a fable Rhodomanthus and Tartarus, and rushed to every excess of crime, thoughtful minds felt the instinctive craving for a creed and a resting place, and recoiled from the blank unbelief and chaos of moral corruption which threatened to absorb every hope of humanity. The race had now fully wrought out the long experiment whether man by his wisdom could know God and stood aghast at its disastrous failure when Christ appeared by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believed. Such were the features of this harvest time. The apostles and their fellow reapers thrust forth into the field with the vigor inculcated by the example and injunctions of their master to gather fruit unto eternal life. Divine wisdom taught them to comprehend the emergency, and the result was that they carried the gospel in one century from the Indus to the pillars of Hercules. The energy and speed of the heralds of the cross was not unworthy of the symbol by which prophecy impersonated them, an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. These favorable circumstances continued but a few generations. Let us suppose that the primitive Christians, instead of toiling with the urgency of harvest laborers, had contented themselves with a few decent exertions, resigning themselves for the rest to a snug and self-religious epicurism. After the first generation came fiery and bloody persecutions, which seemed for a time almost to drown the churches in their own slaughter. Next came the decay, the internal convulsions, the world-resounding fall of the empire, whose arts and arms had all concurred to make a highway for the Prince of Peace. Barbarian and pagan hordes ravaged and dismembered the mighty fabric. 
The language of the gospel, of science, of civilization became a dead one except to one people, the rare accomplishment of the learned few, and the curse of Babel again separated nature from nation. Literature was banished by the din of wars and rapine. Order, commerce, travel were almost at an end. And at last there remained only the chaotic sea of the Middle Ages, thrown with the Eddian wrecks of the ancient world and tossed with the perpetual storms from which a new order was slowly and painfully to emerge. Now need we state the contrast between the probable success of missionary effort in this dreary and turbulent winter and in the glorious summer of the Christian era? True, it was still the duty of the church to endeavor to obey the perpetual injunction regardless of gigantic obstacles, for with her almighty head all things are possible. True, it was still her privilege to hope that faithful toil would not be wholly fruitless even in the most untoward seasons. But still Christ does not wholly abrogate the force of natural causes in His providence over His kingdom. It was also true that the church was now bereft not only of her golden opportunity, but also of her gifts, miracles, tongues, prophecy, and of much of her primitive purity. But the possession of these, as well as of the opportunity to employ them fortunately, was among the things whose concurrence made the harvest season, and their lack will account only a part for the failures of the church. She was not forgetful of the work of missions in the Dark Ages, but how scanty and difficult were the conquests. The first century sufficed for her to run the circuit of that Mediterranean Sea, around which were then grouped the civilized races of man, but, but now, now she consumed four hundred years and creeping doubtfully from the Rhine to the Vistula, and in most of the new ground which she essayed to tread, her footprints were obliterated as she passed as though they had been made in the shifting sands. Consider next how long this impassive reign of darkness continued. Only in the 14th century did the twilight begin slowly and dimly to emerge, which at length in the 16th broke into the new dayspring of the Reformation. From that day to this there has been a steady progress in the rearrangement of all the influences which can facilitate the world's redemption. And now behold, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are wide again to harvest. Never since the era when Christ sent forth His apostles and evangelists into the whitened crop has the world seen a second season so propitious as our age for the ingathering of the people to Him. Let us see how many of the elements of favorable preparation have been reproduced. One of these was the mental activity of the Augustan age. But ever since the triumphant insurrection of the human mind against popery, thought has been increasingly free and active until this age claims it as its peculiar glory. The whole realm of science known to the ancients has been reoccupied and other domains have been added as unknown to them and as magnificent by comparison with theirs as a new world which Columbus opened to our industry. Everywhere the human mind ferments, inquires, and discusses. The printing press, thought 400 years old, still develops new magic in its powers, an agency for which Paul would probably have gladly exchanged his gift of tongues. We even see the strange fact that Papists and Brahmins eagerly employ this engine of light and with judicial blindness accustom their people to its use only to destroy their own empire of darkness. Second, no universal monarchy now dominates over the world, compelling the nations to a temporary and enforced brotherhood, but in its room we have the benignant sway of imperial peace 
with her handmade commerce, more potent over human passions, by the blessing she confers, than was ever Assyrian or Median, Greek or Roman conqueror, by the devastations which he threatened. For even where the short and partial wars of our day prevail, Christianity has so narrowed their operation to actual combatants, and legislated for their atrocity that the peaceful labors of traffic, letters, and religion are scarcely suspended in their presence. And under the wings of this peace and commerce a Christian may go to more peoples and tongues than were ever dreamed by the fabulous geography of the ancients, with a safety as great as was invoked by the proud challenge, I am a Roman citizen. Need I refer to those wonders of modern science, by which the distance is abridged, and may we almost say with prophecy, there is no more sea to divide the nation. Third, in place of the common language of antiquity, we have now the English, a tongue yet nobler, and spoken in more different tribes, and in more of the hives of men, than was a Greek in the days of Paul. And with this language goes the prestige and fear of the British people, protecting us almost equally with them. For such is the community of tongue, race, character, religion, and interest between Britain and America, that in the pagan world men fortunately almost forget to distinguish between us. What silent sea or ancient river is not vexed by their prows and visited by their enterprise? In what mart do not their flags inspire fear and respect? so that to omit their vast dependencies, more ample than the empire of Augustus, there is scarcely a province in the pagan world where Protestant power and enterprise have not so proceeded that the Protestant teacher may enter securely and perform his mission under the shield of their protection. For even China and Japan, the last strongholds of exclusive jealousy, will doubtless before long disclose their mysteries before the inevitable forces of the age. When we turn to the lands of the beast and the false prophet, we see there also a rapid relaxation of hindrances. Moslem fanaticism burns but feebly in our day, for decrepitude and dependence now compel those powers once so terrible to Christianity to purchase the protection of the most Protestant nation at the price of a tolerance of Christians which they were little wont to exercise. How wondrously hath God wrought here! Even popery, enemy of the gospel, more inexorable than Islam, is compelled by triumphant moral influences to relax its exclusiveness. In Sardinia, France, Belgium, in Brazil, and the other states of Central and Southern America, soon to be seats of teeming empires, a partial liberty is yielded to the gospel. And as though it were not enough to open every door to us abroad, Providence has precipitated a part of the destitute into our arms at home by directing the immigration of Popish Europe to our Atlantic and of Pagan Asia to our Pacific border. While God has thus prepared the field for us, He has also prepared us for the field. And those Protestant nations to whom He has virtually given the empire of the world, He has given to His churches the numbers, the wealth, the education, the moral influence requisite to enable them to go up and occupy the ground. Never since the Christian era has there been a second concurrence such as this of everything which promotes a facile and successful spread of Christianity. The fields are white to harvest. But now let us solemnly remember that a harvest season is from its nature very short. Let us review these advantages, not in the spirit of pompous self-gratulation, too often seen, but with a trembling sense of the duties which they imply. For be assured, this fortunate juncture cannot be permanent. It is too good to last unless it be improved. 
as reasonably might we hope that two planets which had been wheeling their long cycles in devious opposition around the remoter verge of Saturn, when at length they meet one instance in our field of view, would arrest their ceaseless courses to remain in conjunction. It is the attribute of human affairs to revolve. And when this great living wheel of providence, which is so high that it is dreadful, shall have once more turned away its auspicious segment from the church, who can tell how many ages may elapse before its stately revolution will restore it to us? Let us take a probable warning from the past. The harvest time enjoyed by the primitive church was spent, and it returned not again until a mighty year had rolled around, of which the months were ages, and winter the ten dreary centuries of barbarism and the frost of spiritual death. So if we waste this summer, which seems at length returning, after so long a winter so tedious a spring, and so many capricious frosts blighting the rising promise of the church, when will the third harvest for the world return? By what second series of dark ages, by how many national convulsions and retributive woes may not God chastise the church for its neglect, and then by how many throes of great struggling souls, by what strives and toils, by what streams of martyr blood may she not be required to earn for mankind another season as propitious as the one we now waste? And should this picture be realized by the shortcoming of the church, history suggests another probable warning of special significance to us as Americans. It is not likely that our land will be one of those which will be honored to send forth that thirty-day spring of gospel light to the race of man. When once the toil of a country hath been polluted by the failures and apostasies of God's church, he removes his special favors from it to return no more for long and disastrous ages. Look at those lands on which the Hebrew and the primitive churches enjoyed and misused and sent away their splendid opportunities. How blighted, how benighted, how accursed have they lain ever since. God sought out other lands which had lain in reserve in virgin wilderness, untainted by the church's treason to his cause, or else which had undergone the lustration of centuries of chastisement, in which to relume the light of the gospel. So, if we waste this golden season, it is probable that America will not be the land to which the Gentiles will come for the church's light, and kings to the brightness of her rising. While this fair domain will lie blasted by the guilt of its inhabitants, some new church on some soil now pagan will enjoy the privilege of sending forth to a benighted world and to degenerate posterity the dayspring of the millennium. And what, my brethren, is a catastrophe of a series of human generations mainly lost through the betrayal of that critical one on which providence thus partly stakes the fate of many of its successors? We have endeavored to grasp the evil implied in the death of one pagan soul, but found it too great for imagination. We have endeavored to represent to ourselves the immense interests of the generation of our pagan contemporaries, who are directly dependent on us for their rescue from perdition, but the mind staggered under the vastness and the fruitfulness of the thought. We must now add this further truth, that the destiny of our critical age may largely determine that of many coming after it, and then we begin to see the weight of our responsibilities. Take this great and dreadful fact home to your meditations, and let it grow upon your comprehension in the hours of silent thought and of communion with God. Had I the tongues of men and of angels, it would still be mere mockery for me to seek words by which to exalt your conception of it, for words cannot utter the unutterable. 
And now we doubtless all feel that the discussion of such things as these should have but one conclusion, the enforcement upon our own hearts of the duty of most intense exertion in this awful yet blessed work of the world's redemption. But who shall dare to define and paint that energy or to fix the standard of that zeal which is commensurate with a vast exigency? Who that had not, like Isaiah, received the touch of a live coal from the, off the altar upon his lips, or like Paul being caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, would be sufficient for the task? Let me not attempt it. But there is a picture of the love, the effort, the liberality, which the occasion should inspire, a picture accurate and equal to the case. It is the living image of the Savior's own example when He came as a missionary of heaven. See then in Him, and not in the stammering words of man, the application of His truth. Let us learn to describe our labors for the lost in His words. My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me, and to finish His work. And when we give of the abundance with which God has blessed us, let us consider the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor, that we through His poverty might be rich. Dr. Dabney had a number of children, and his love for his children was strong like all his affections, but the Lord not only gave him these little ones to love, he took from him his two firstborn in the year that Charles William came, his youngest son, and in 1862 the fourth son was also taken away. Two out of the three he looked upon as his very brightest children. In these bereavements he suffered as only a very strong man, a man of persistence and intensity of character equally marked, could suffer. They were all carried off by diphtheria, and the awful sufferings incident to the disease made the stroke all the harder for the parents. The following letters set forth the affliction as he saw it and felt it, and they also served to indicate possibly a part of the divine purpose in the chastisement. Written to his brother Charles Williams, November 15, 1855. My dear brother, your letter was received yesterday and found us in great sorrow. I was very grateful for the cheerful kindness and affection breathing from it. I could not but think how sympathizing your language would have been if you had known at the time the sorrowful circumstances in which it would find us. Last Monday, a little after twelve o'clock, our little Jimmy was taken from us by that fearful enemy of the young, putrid, sore throat. Just a fortnight before, Bob had been taken, at first not very violently, but afterwards he was for two days and nights at death's door. When he was taken, I was about to start to the Senate of North Carolina at Greensboro, about 140 miles off. I hesitated a good deal about starting, but Lavinia thought I might venture. From the time I left, Bobby grew rapidly worse, and Sunday evening I got a letter and a telegram telling me that he was extremely ill. His attack had developed itself as putrid sore throat and threatened suffocation. I started that night, traveled all night, and reached home the next night about 8 p.m. Bobby was greatly relieved, but exceedingly feeble, having had a terrific attack. Now he is feeble and threatened with a rising on the neck. The rest seemed well, but the next evening, last Tuesday week, we discovered that Jimmy was chilly and feverish, and in short had the sore throat. We used prompt measures and sent early for the doctor, who did not think his case dangerous, but he grew gradually worse until Sunday, 
when his symptoms became alarming and he passed away after great sufferings Monday. He was intelligent to the last, even after he became speechless, and his appealing looks to us and the physician would have melted a stone. Some half hour before he died he sank into sleep, which became more and more quiet until he gently sighed his soul away. This, my dear brother, is the first death we have had in our family and my first experience of any great sorrow. I have learned rapidly in the school of anguish this week, and am many years older than I was a few days ago. It is not so much that I could not give my darling up, so far as self was concerned, but that I saw him suffer such pangs, and then fall under the grasp of the cruel destroyer, while I was impotent for his help. Oh, when the mighty wings of the angel of death nestles over your heart's treasures, and his black noisome shadow broods over your home, it shakes the heart with a shuddering terror and a horror of great darkness. To see my dear little one thus ravaged, crushed and destroyed, turning his beautiful liquid eyes to me and his weeping mother for help, after his gentle voice was obstructed, and to feel myself as helpless as he to give any aid, this tears my heart with anguish. And then I remember that this death reigns over all else that I love, over wife, remaining children, friends, and my own body, and may seize them I know not when. How fearful is it to live and love in such a world! How awful that sin of which death is the wages! Such are the feelings with which the natural heart regards these calamities, but blessed be God to Christian faith they wear a different aspect. Death is no longer a hellish monster and tyrant, but Christ's messenger. Our parting is not for long. This despoiled and ruined body will be raised, and all its ravished beauties more than repaired. And as to the other beloved ones whom I see exposed to death and disease, I know that death cannot touch them, unless that heavenly Father who orders everything for me in love and wisdom sees it best. So I can trust them, though tremblingly, to his keeping and be at peace. Our little Jimmy, we hope and trust, is now a ransomed spirit. He had not reached such years of understanding as to be able to express an intelligent faith. And in such cases I believe the souls of the young are redeemed in the second Adam without their personal agency, even as they inherited their sinful and mortal state from the first. This is a hope inexpressible and full of glory. As I stand by the little grave and think of the poor ruined clay within, that was a few days ago so beautiful, my heart bleeds. But as I ask, where is a soul whose beams gave that clay all its beauty and preciousness? I triumph. Has it not already begun with an infant voice of praises of my Savior? Perhaps some loving angel, one of those that assisted to release and bear home the Spirit, nurse purer and tenderer than his dear mother even, has been deputed to teach it and train it, to heavenly manhood. Perhaps it has been committed to our sainted father, or to my wife's sainted grandmother, as one of their redeemed posterity, to keep and train till we can embrace him again. At any rate, it is in Christ's heavenly house, and under his guardian love. Now I feel as never before the blessedness of that redeeming grace and divine blood, which have ransomed my poor babe from all the sin and death, which he inherited through me. Dr. Sampson used to say that while he trembled with almost daily solicitude for his father's soul, respect and the fear of seeming insolent interposed an almost insuperable barrier 
to his saying anything to promote his salvation. I have felt just the same solicitude and the same diffidence towards you, my senior, guardian, second father, and faithful guide, whom I feel to be a superior to me in all my merely human virtues as an age. But coming from this awful agonizing deathbed of my boy, from this verge of the eternal world, I feel that my tongue is untied. I can speak, I will speak now, not as an instructor or rebuker, taking the attitude of superior wisdom or merit, but as a soul once sin sick and miserable, pointing a beloved brother sinner to the divine physician whom I have found. My dear brother, you know that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, that without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance towards God, no sin can be pardoned, and the wages of sin is eternal death. Have you sought and found these preparations? You say that time hurries away with impetuous speed, and there is leisure for less and less as you grow older? How short a span is a year now? A few more of these fleeting moments will bring you to an awful eternity. You are no longer young. Secular occupations and cares have a giant hold on your affections, habits, and thoughts. You should tremble also to think how seldom and how irregularly you are brought under the influence of the faithful, scriptural, and fervent preaching of the gospel and under the blessed teachings of Sabbath institutions. You feel and confess that you are not at ease nor interested in your avocations. It is because your better self tells you that they are too trivial to deserve the toils and cares of an immortal being who has the cares of an immortality unsettled. I beseech you, begin to search the scriptures, to think of your danger, to remember the immortal interests of your beloved wife, my sister, and your three children, to weigh your danger and settle the question, What must I do to be saved? In the appendix to the little memoirs which I sent you, you will find a sermon answering this vast question. I sent you the book partly as a testimonial of my perpetual love and remembrance, but more that you might read this sermon. It is not grandiloquent nor original, but it is an admirably satisfying, simple and luminous statement of what salvation is. Every sentence is full of solid instruction. Will you read it for my sake with such careful pondering of its statements as you would give to an important law paper? And then let me know your answer to the question, What think ye of Christ? Do not suppose, my dear brother, that these words are the temporary effusions of a grief and alarm excited by the watchings of the sick room and the terrors of a deathbed, the mere morbid feelings of an overwrought soul, which will be forgotten as soon as the steady sunshine returns to my household. They are my habitual feelings, they are just the words I have always longed to speak, but feared lest I should offend. Oftentimes we have been together, just such words have been in my heart. I have seemed to be interested in our talk, while it was all of the earth, in order that I might find a loophole in which to introduce a great concern without rudeness. I have essayed to introduce it again and again, and shrunk and postponed it, with a weak and no doubt a sinful fear. A thousand times have I prayed for you and yours in secret, when all was in customary peace and prosperity, and besought the Lord that he would turn your feet to his testimonies, and make our Father's God your God. Now I beseech you to consider whether you have any time to lose. My dear sister is inclined, I know, to serious things, and is hampered and retarded by your influences. Your children are losing the fairest time for good impressions, and above all, 
A certain terrible death is advancing on us all. My dear wife is in bed partly from her Herculean labors and anxieties, partly from a mild attack of the same disease which seems to be contagious here. Bobby is still on his back. Our little Charlie Willie seems well. But we tremble every day lest he should draw in the infection with the very milk which is his necessary food. God only knows what is in store for us, but we strive to be patient and trust in God. All things shall work together for good to those that love God. Lavinia sends her dearest love to you and sister Cordelia. Remember me to the boy, yours affectionately, R. L. Dabney. Letter number two. My dear brother, I am indebted to you two letters for the tender and generous sympathy of which I can never be thankful enough to you. But I do not know whether I should have found heart to answer them now, were it not that your kind invitation is of such a nature as to demand such, some response. I can assure you that there is nothing within the range of possibilities for which my heart yearns so much as a visit you propose. Whether it would diminish my depression and sadness, I cannot be so certain, for everything at your house and mamma's would remind me of those beloved little ones who were with us when we were there last. But it is out of the question now. My absence from home, ill-starred, my afflictions and sickness, has thrown my classes very much behind hand. Our session is in full progress, and if I am ever to work, now is the time when work calls me most urgently. I feel that after having received such warnings of sin and death, and being brought so near to eternity, it is no time for me to be remiss in duty or self-indulgent in the employment of my time. Bobby left us Wednesday night at twelve o'clock. We buried the poor, ruined, and despoiled remains Friday. The next day I went to work in my sick room, and the next week regularly resumed my lectures. It required no effort for me to do so. Work has long been a second nature to me, and the only consolation I have now is the attempt to do my duty. It is painful to me to write to my friends now, delightful as it is to receive their communications. I cannot speak of anything except that which fills my mind every waking hour, except when I drag it away to my daily occupations. My two boys gone from me, and yet it is painful to speak of them too. When my Jimmy died, grief was pungent. But the actings of faith, the embracing of consolation, the conception of all the cheering truth which ministered consolation, were proportionably vivid. But when the stroke was repeated and thereby doubled, I seemed to be paralyzed and stunned. I know that my loss is doubled, and I know also that the same cheering truth applied to the second is to the first. But I remained stupid, downcast, almost without hope and interest. When I turned away from Jimmy's corpse to my lovely infant, my affections and my fears seemed both to flow out towards him with a strength delicious and agonizing. I never tired of folding him in my arms as a sweet substitute for my loss, nor of trembling for him also, lest the loss should extend to him. But when Bobby was taken, and our little one remained our only hope, it seemed to me I was both afraid and reluctant to center my affections on him. I feel towards him a mixture of languor and pain, not having the heart to be happy in his caresses and not daring. This is strange, perhaps inexplicable. 
death has struck me with a dagger of ice. He is not only wounded, but benumbed. I believe that Jimmy was too young to be responsible, and that as such, though by nature depraved, he is saved, renewed, and glorified by the grace of God. And Bobby, if not also too young to be responsible, which is most probable, showed such sweet and striking evidences of ripening for heaven that I cannot believe he is anywhere else. Yet believe in this, as I do firmly, I hardly have life to rejoice in it. But thanks to God I am not moping nor murmuring. If I could see the blows blessed to myself, my kindred, and my friends, I should in time be able to bless God for it. And this is my constant prayer. I needed just such warnings to make me more faithful in striving to do good to my friends. Would to God that I could be a blessing to you. This alone would almost be consolation enough for my losses. Lavinia is well in body and usually entirely calm but deeply sad. She expresses fervent thanks for your affections and sends her best love. Her parents are here for a short time, but not, I think, to her solace. Mr. M. is exceedingly broke, depressed, and feeble, and is on his way with Mrs. M. to the south, on an almost hopeless search for health, his pecuniary affairs deranged, and his children scattered. I think his presence rather saddens Lavinia. With love to Sister C. and the little ones, yours affectionately, R. L. Dabney. The last piece of literary work, which Dabney did, was the preparation of a brief sketch of the life of his teacher, colleague, and friend, Dr. Francis S. Sampson. He did this on Monday, the third day of January, 1896. On the evening of that day, he was seized with an acute illness. After four hours at 11 p.m., the heart and brain that had moved for three-quarters of a century with such extraordinary momentum ceased to act. Robert Louis Dabney was dead. During these years subsequent to June 1894, he had seen the fourth volume of his discussions brought into print, and had in these three years prepared at least two of the discussions brought out in that volume, The Influence of False Philosophies Upon Character and Conduct, The True Purpose of the Civil War. These are not long papers, but they bear the marks of Dr. Dabney's mental power and vigor. Dr. and Mrs. Dabney had returned to Victoria in the early part of December 1897. During that month, he had not been very well, but was able to go about his premises, and as if anticipating his death, had been active in fitting his place more to suit Mrs. Dabney's convenience. On Sunday the 2nd of January, he had proposed to attend church, but suffered himself to be dissuaded as the day was raw and chilly. He was suffering somewhat, but no uneasiness was felt by his family until about 9 o'clock p.m. The end was much nearer than they thought even then. He suffered sharp pain in the chest. The minutes ticked away. He showed less of restlessness. When Mrs. Dabney asked him whether he felt easier, he said, A little easier, but the blessed rest is here. The mighty worker was weary of pain. Like his great military chief, he yearned for rest from it. He had long prayed that when the release should come, it might come quickly, and it came as he had prayed. At ten minutes before 11 p.m. of that third day of January, he was dead. He had long commanded his sons to bury his body in the little cemetery belonging to the Union Theological Seminary at Hampton, Sydney, Virginia. He had fought with tongue and pen for all the South, but specially for Virginia, his mother who had made him peer of her noblest, most heroic sons.
He loved no other soil as hers. He loved old Hampton, Sydney, where he had poured himself out in his manhood's prime and turned multitudinous eyes upon the place because he had his workshop there. He would have his body sleep beside the bodies of his three little sons till the resurrection morning. At his funeral, the following was read, quote, A prince and a great man has fallen in Israel. On such occasions it is proper to take account of our loss, that we may rightly estimate what the Lord gave and what the Lord has taken away. That our departed friend and brother was indeed a prince and a great man in Israel, made so by God's gifts of nature and grace, all would agree. That he was a great teacher, scores and hundreds of our ministers who have enjoyed the privilege of his instruction have always cordially testified. That he was a great theologian, his numerous works, left as an invaluable heritage to the church, make abundantly evident. That he was a great philosopher, his frequent and important contributions to the philosophical discussions of the last thirty years in our country clearly demonstrate. That he was a great preacher, many present can bear witness from their own delightful experience as for years they sat under his pulpit ministrations. That as a result of thirty years teaching in the seminary and of the contribution he has made to our religious and ethical and theological literature, he has left a deeper impression for good on our southern ministry and southern church than any other man who has ever been connected with our denomination. Few, I suppose, would question. That he was a great man in the excellence of his character, in conscientiousness, in integrity, in courage, in his supreme devotion to truth and to duty, and in zeal for the church and for God, none can doubt. That he was one of the most valuable gifts God has ever made to our church and our country, all would admit well, therefore, we today mourn over our loss, for God would not have us so lightly esteem so great a gift as not to be profoundly affected when it was withdrawn. We should mingle with our lamentations the most sincere thanks given to God that He has ever made us so great a gift, that He preserved it to us so long, that now our brother, after faithfully serving his generation until vital forces failed under the growing infirmities of advancing years, has gently fallen on sleep and been received to his reward, and that those eyes so long closed to the beauties of this world and to the faces and forms of earth by love and friendship have been opened to the glories of the heavenly kingdom, and to behold the loved ones gone before in the general assembly and church of the firstborn, and to see the king in his beauty. Let us then be profoundly grateful while we are at the same time tenderly sorrowful. But it is not my purpose even to attempt to give you an adequate conception of Dr. Dabney's life and character. I leave that for the more competent brethren who will presently address you. I only wish in introducing this part of the service to avail myself of the privilege and opportunity of laying a little flower upon the buyer of him to whom I am more indebted than to any other man living or dead. So they laid away the body of Robert L. Dabney amongst the bodies of a goodly number of sainted and able men, and beside the dust of his three little boys. Now you have a little bit of knowledge of the life of a great theologian of the past century, Robert Louis Dabney, and my only prayer could be that God would give us the same affections to his son and the same energy to bring forth the gospel by word and light, some of these great divines of old. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. 
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L, 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.